Hi, I'm Clay Hausman, host of Contextual Intelligence, and we're here today with a special episode in kind of a unique format for us. And that's because we recently hosted what we call the Octana Masterclass around how to implement and scale AI within your commercial or medical operations of a life sciences company. We had a number of different thought leaders and customers who participated in the event. And one of the most interesting sessions that I found was a panel discussion that was led by our esteemed head of markets, Alan Colton. And Alan is here with me today. Welcome, Alan. Thanks so much, Clay. Great to be here. And yes, it was a really exciting session. We had Paul Thompson, who heads up Fieldforce AI enablement at Novartis. Mike Soper joined us. He leads global field capabilities and excellence at Biogen. And we also had Yusuf Idokade, who heads up data science for Genentech. It was a really interesting session. So Alan, I had the privilege of listening to it live. There were a lot of really helpful insights from the diversity of our speakers, as you just mentioned. But I find that the, the panel moderator often has the, the best front row seat. And I'm curious, what were some of the most interesting takeaways that you had from leading the conversation? Well, for three gentlemen that have been through a similar sounding journey, they had some really unique experience that they shared with the panel. We learned a lot about the critical skills that they needed to evolve in their teams to be successful. They talked about how they define success and manage the expectations of their organizations. And they talked about the journey and shared some of their own personal advice on how they became successful at doing this type of work. And we were very blessed at the end to hear a little bit about their ambition for AI in the future of commercial execution. That's great. Well, it really was an insightful and, and helpful conversation. So let's not take any more time setting up the conversation. Let's get straight to it. And without any further ado, here is this session at the masterclass that Alan moderated with our customers. It's been a really exciting session so far. I hope you've all taken away a few nuggets that can help you find success in your own programs. Now we've touched on a number of uh, different aspects of bringing together AI at scale. You know, we've looked at how to get started and even if your data isn't perfect, we've looked at how to design efficiencies that make it easier to scale. And also we've looked at best practices for managing global programs. And we've even covered some of the technical aspects around creating the right AI framework that works with the unique data sets that we need for in local markets. But we now have an opportunity to engage with our guest speakers and with the addition of Mike Sopa once again and really pressure test some of these important aspects of the strategies we've covered. All right, let's get started. So the first question, data science by definition relies on data to deliver value. And we heard from Yusuf in, in the first session around the importance of understanding and using data in the right way. So the question for Yusuf really to kick off today is, can artificial intelligence in commercial execution be used to not just work with incomplete or inaccurate data, but also be set up to improve the quality of data over time. So over to you, Yusuf. Thank you, Alan, and nice to see you again, Paul and Mike. Very good question, I think. Yes, and I would name it actually. It's called feedback loop. What does it mean really? So instead of making an AI system or just a simple machine learning model, being just like in a consumption mode of that data, whatever the data you enter in that system, make it instead interact with the, with the end user. An advocate of giving power back to humans, right? In, in the process of building trust. 
And it's not just building trust, but basically like what I have seen before, by creating the feedback loop, we improve the quality of the data we have in the first layer, which is the data ingestion and model training. So that's number one. I think feedback loop is, is definitely through AI and machine learning processes creates that opportunity to give back and improve the quality of the, the data. The second one is the use of machine learning in what I call data administration, right? Like we have seen a lot of data in the commercial feed, for example, coming from audios, right? Like it could be as simple as creating frameworks for pre-processing or processing call logs by using like speech to text or something like that. So creating the opportunity to structure unstructured data, even if it's not perfect, it's fine, but it creates an opportunity for machine learning, especially recommender systems in commercial side to get um, the models to a better state. There are other opportunities, of course, but this is like more in, in, in relation to, to marketing. And we, we start seeing it at least at Genentech with voice of customer. Pharma and healthcare, by definition, it's an industry with a lot of unstructured data. And I think natural language processing and understanding more importantly and more specifically can also help create a set of data that is usable. It's not just a, a cost center. Again, I don't want to be just acquiring data and, and creating data systems without making a value out of them. And I think machine learning helps get the data to a level of pre-processing or processing that is ready to be used. Again, when I say a good level or a good quality of data, it doesn't mean that you have a, a huge volume or whatever, like the buzzword was big data instead. I think machine learning can definitely bring us from big data to a smart data that is useful to the goal we're trying to, uh, to achieve. And commercial, I think it's a good uh, it's a good way to start. That's fantastic, Yusuf. Thank you. And I think that sounds like it's got a the the next series presentation already baked into it. Uh, really, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. All right. Well, let's go to the next question then. I've got one here. When you're looking at deploying new capability, uh, you want to do that quickly. And it's that's an essential part of maximizing time to value. But really asking the panel here, what are some of your tips and best practices that you've evolved that kind of balance that need to evolve and minimize that time to value, but also maximize end user engagement and then make sure the organization is prepared? So perhaps maybe we could uh, go to Mike first on this one. Thanks, Alan. I think we've heard a lot today from the previous session, some of those tips already, and it really starts with the whole approach to the program. And it's certainly in our case, we're really trying to live up to the ethos of build once and deploy many, which means you need to do a lot of work before you get to the markets. It's very hard to deploy a large scale program if it takes months and lots of people on a, lo on a local level. So I think the more that can be done up front, and this is where the idea, I think, of the global use case library, then the, the better. But also just um, one of the comments from the session with uh, Veronica and Raquel at the beginning is something that really resonated with me, and that is about standardization. Because we can have a library, we can have a framework, we can deploy quickly, but all it's gonna do, what it's gonna take is to have one or two unexpected things happen or appear or be suggested because some of the data, some of the inputs, are not aligned to really undermine some of the uh, efforts that we've put in at the start. So I think that's a really crucial thing to be thinking about right at the very start of a program like this. And then the last point I, I would add to that is have a look at what tools, delivery platforms you've already got. In our case, we already have a capability 
that we already have deployed, it will save us a huge amount of time in terms of training on a new tool. We are evolving or enhancing an existing delivery tool for our field with the capability of next best action. So I think there's opportunities to do that. I know a lot of companies make some of the use of the the Viva delivery tools. There's opportunities to integrate into something that you've already done, which will only help your adoption when you come to rolling it out. That's wonderful. Thanks so much, Mike. And maybe I could ask Paul to maybe make a few comments as well. Very little to build on. You've covered it so well, Mike. I would echo the, the preparation and the standardization. I think we spent quite a lot of time once we'd done it a few times, almost building a playbook and making sure that we were able to repeat and learn. And I think once we'd done it five or six times, we were almost doing it in a third of the time that we were originally. So, so definitely that. I think getting the right people into the change program and into your kind of center of expertise is also critical and having a sort of almost a succession plan of talent for those that are going to kind of bring this into the organization because that's really key. And best practice sharing. I mean, great ideas can emerge all over the place and the quicker you can grab hold of them and share them and leverage them, the better. So think about how you can get forums for best practice sharing in place too. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Paul. I think maybe building on that, we've got a question around how you introduce um, AI into the commercial execution. The fact that's a journey, which is something I think all of the uh, the presenters today have referenced. And really, well, how do you manage that at a global level where you're actively actively creating and managing expectations from a, a diverse set of stakeholders at the affiliate level, at the end consumer level with the representatives and marketeers, et cetera, that are involved? And what, what sort of communications, maybe building on what you've just said, Paul, have helped you to keep everybody aligned and moving in the right direction? I think have a good story as a starting point. As uh, Mike was just saying, you're trying to connect often into a lot of things that already exist. And what you want to show is how how NextBest is building into a, a collected change in a way of working. If you can paint the vision of what it'll be like to stand at the end of the journey and look back with all of this connected, then it becomes a lot less confusing to people and and often a lot less sort of scary in inverted commas. There's another need to address any concerns that people have. You know, is AI replacing my job? Is this just another cost-cutting mechanism dressed up in fancy terms? You have to face that kind of thing head on and be able to articulate that, no, it's not. This is genuinely responding to a need to service our customers differently and to use, uh, you know, technology and data to do that. And I think engaging at all levels, uh, clearly there needs to be a lot of senior stakeholder management. You need to get the senior folk talking about your program and endorsing it and sort of giving it that sort of blessing. But all the way down through to engaging with different associates and bringing them into the program and peer-to-peer influence is one of the biggest ways of getting momentum behind something, I think. Fantastic. Thank you, Paul. I guess when you're embarking upon a program that really is about behavioral change and about organizational transformation, making sure all of that alignment is maintained is a, seems like it's a full-time job. So fantastic to get your insights there. Let's have a look at another question here. We've got three wonderful experts around the table. Based on your personal experience, what is one piece of advice that you would convey to somebody just about to embark on this type of journey for the first time. And uh, maybe I'll throw that up to see who, who who might have some advice they'd like to share first. Happy to go with something very, very sort of, uh, I would say, start small, learn fast, keep smiling. <laughs> <laughs> As my former boss used to say, you can disarm an awful lot of complexity with a smile. 
this isn't easy. So that's I, I, all I'd say. Just come at it with a with an agile mindset, and and that helps a lot. Fantastic. Thanks, Paul. And maybe yourself. Do you have any anything to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. So I would add to to Paul. Believe, right? When you believe in the journey, especially as as leaders, you don't need to spend your time trying to to convince about this, right? Like we all know that this is happening, right? You need to be a believer because the journey is so so long, can be so complex. It's not a software that you buy. It's not just like a and and an additional headcount with certain expertise you add. It becomes very spiritual. So you need to believe in it. And the rest is just history. Of course, you need to invest. You need to get people around and paint the picture. Have a visual pulse point. Start small. Dream big. There is no harm of, of dreaming. And I guess in one of my podcasts, uh, I have mentioned that. So, And I will keep mentioning it. So really have big plans for your teams, for your organization, for your you know leadership. But start small and fail fast. Give yourself permission to fail. That experimentation mindset will get you to where you want to you wanna be. But yet you had to identify and set the destination in your GPS. Otherwise, you go nowhere. So that's my, my piece of advice. <laughs> Fantastic. I would also say be realistic. It's great to have all these wonderful ideas and a, and a roadmap. But when you're starting out, AI, as Yusuf just said, it's been around an awful long time, but it still seems to be a buzzword. But you don't have to jump straight into that. There's a lot of value-added things we can do just with some simple rules that um, will make a huge difference to being in a field. So be realistic and be transparent that it's not going to all come on day one and it is a journey that you're starting. Fantastic. Thank, thank you, Mike. Thanks, Paul. And thanks, Yusuf. Great words of wisdom for people about to embark on the journey. Let's switch to another one, which is a very interesting one, which is about how you define success for this type of program and, and what would you recommend the industry adopt as a benchmark for success. And perhaps I know, Mike, that's a that's a passion of yours. So I think I'm going to go to you first on, on, on that one. Yeah, I think, it's, I think the answer is it depends on the life cycle of where you are in terms of this sort of program. In the early days, of course, I think it's important to be focusing on things like adoption and not just usage, but actual adoption. Are we actually following what we are suggesting to do or what the, the capability is suggesting to do? And then I think as you move through that life cycle, your measure of success is going to start focusing more on a business impact. So are we actually having an impact with customers? Are we getting across the right message at the right time on, a, on the right channel? Are we aligning our content it's not just about the, the, the channel, but are we also aligning to the preferences that we, we know that our customers have? What do they want to hear about? And then ultimately, I think you can start looking at things like MPS. Are we actually seeing a shift in perceptions of us or of our field from our customers? And that you can clearly see there's a shift comparing both pre-solution and, and post-solution. So you can really sort of nail that down because and anchor that towards the program that you've rolled out. Because I think in absence of HCP level data in the majority of the, the countries we work in, it's very hard to really measure field impact. So you need to look at these secondary measures. So I would be very clear on where am I in, where are you in the life cycle of the whole program? And how did we perform on that particular measure before? And after, and even if that means you do some sort of A/B testing as you go along, I think that's really key to be looking at. Fantastic, thank you, Mike. Uh, really important to understand where you are on the journey and define your success criteria based on on where you are. Great to hear that. Maybe I could ask you, Seth, to maybe make a few comments as well on this topic, if, if I may. 
Absolutely. I, I liked how Mike laid it down. So we tend to define success uh, criteria as, as a fixed thing. It's a moving target, right? I think uh, it has to do also with this notion of starting small. Your goal might be as simple as automating, for example, 10% of your process using AI and ML. So I think that's just enough. One of the really important things in, in engagement, for example, is logging the calls. Of course, there is incentive that, that goes with that, but like from AI standpoint, like there is the, the cost that goes with processing and mining these logs. And, and I guess success would be as simple as, you know, yeah, just processing like a X amount or X percent of, of that data in order to, to make incremental improvement in generating content for the rep. I think that's, a, that's an example. I believe also that it is great, I think, when defining success to make part of it uh, a little bit formal because mm -hmm. at the leadership level, we tend to define this kind of goals and KPIs, but like when it comes to execution, I think we need to, to create um, or an incentivized environment for our people to make sure that if they are part of the journey, we make sure that we, we reduce, for example, some of the workload they are having in a traditional day-to-day -day or, or business as usual. So because not everyone will make definitely the journey. That's we know that by definition. But at least when we embark, I think we should be super, uh, how can I say, thoughtful when it comes to defining success also for, for our people because they need to be clear about what they are delivering and what they are being incentivized for. And that's by itself a big success criteria because if, if you fail getting that level of transparency and visibility for people who are executing, your AI vision, then mm -hmm. I think it's it, it doesn't matter whatever you are building. I think it's going to be just a failure because you don't have the team to support that. Fantastic. Thank you. Let's have a look at a, a question on skills and capabilities. So you guys are veterans. You've been through this and you've looked at the way the organization was before and now what the organization needs today in order to be successful. What are some of those critical skills and capabilities that you've needed to really inject into the program that you didn't have before that you now see as the currency that drives success in, in your programs. And maybe I'll, I'll direct that to you, Seth, first, if I may. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. For me, it's a current question <laughs> because I'm in the middle of this. I, I joined um, Genentech and, and, and I think I've mentioned that also in the podcast. So basically a lot of talents and rock stars. Skills, I think, yeah, they're hard to get, but like when you have talents, you need to cherish them. But but I think I would add to that skills question also like um, what is the operating model you put in place in order to make this a success, right? So in terms of skills, I think if you asked me 10 years ago or like even 13 years or 15 years ago, like uh, what are the skills I would tell you, okay, get statisticians, data scientists, like just the tech, techie kind of, right? Get the, the best developer in the world you can. But, but we all understand that now that piece of code, it's super tiny in the process. Instead, I think the skills that I came across and in my journey of, of AI in general, but especially now that I'm in, in biotech and pharma, is roles like having good translators, right? Because I work uh, with my team day to day with the early adopters from customer engagement department, for example, an organization. So people who are in the field, marketing and digital space, you need to have translators, people who understand enough what that AI mean or, or what does that AI mean for them, but they bring a sort of subject matter expertise in order to activate and enable whatever you are building. 
And these are usually very couple folks in the organization that you need to identify working with the leadership because it has to be also a win-win situation because you're going to use them for X amount of time and they're going to spend time with you and your teams. So I think, yeah, that, that skill of translation and enablement is key. You need someone who can enable whatever solution you implement and roll out to the rest of the organization. And you, you can have multiple of them, right? For example, I give you an example, very concrete. For me, it's for segmentation or targeting capability. I would need someone who speaks to um, marketing and targeting people, someone who understands that and someone who understands AI as well. So for me, that skill is very important. There is another skill basically around technology itself. You need to have tech leads who are not just IT and infrastructure focused, but people who are enabled to enable your solution to the rest of the organization when it comes to um, compute, for example, is a very important aspect of what we are trying to do. So that skill, it's not an easy one because we tend to use IT as a support, but basically translating that or redefining the role of, of technologists it's key. So another role for me that, that really introduced is you need to have someone who oversees the product you are building. The AI product is very important, right? Not, again, consider AI that piece of code that you create as a standalone thing and you try to sell it. You go in front of your field directors and you open your notebook. So, okay, here is a nice code, guys. I have super good accuracy. They don't care about that. Instead, if you make it part of a product build, we, I hired, by the way, my first uh, machine learning product manager, Genetech, and it's very successful because this person oversees with the skills, it's a sort of unicorn, the product of next best action in collaboration with Actana because, and, and, and by the way, this, this kind of operating model that we have built also with Actana, is, it's, it's working because basically it puts all the skills together, technical, technology, and also enablement in order to, to deliver. And, and commercial was a good example because we have delivered a lot so far. And I think with that success, we are rolling out other things. But to me, get people who can translate what you're doing. That's very important. And then make sure that you are not using IT as a cost center, but you are using them as a partner. And I think titles like tech lead is very key. The rest you can find everywhere, not to minimize data science work or, or coding, but I think it's very important to have governance that the product management a notion. It doesn't have to be just something that Facebook and Google have. I think it, we can benefit from that in our organizations as well. So I'm happy to hear from Paul and Mike what they think about the same in, in the company. Fantastic. Maybe the Paul? <laughs> yeah, it was interesting listening to you speak. Yes, I think we had similar sort of gaps, to be honest. I guess the first thing we would say is it's about bringing together a, a team of people with quite a number of different skill sets if you want to sort of successfully both build and then deploy something like this. But the concept of running as a product and uh, and kind of the, the idea of then working in an agile way, I think that is definitely a journey that we're on that's, uh, you know, in its infancy because it tends not to fit very well with the classic sort of budgetary cycle and, and other governance processes that are set up within organizations. So one of the things that we've certainly had to try and build is, is the skill to work as an agile product team within a, a more conventional setup, if you like, because that really is critical, I think, to, to driving this. The translation bit, I would absolutely echo, I think. 
one of the big values we found with working with Actana actually is that you do have a lot of the skills in that translating from business to technical and, and vice versa. The number of times I've seen a, a session in which a data scientist sits down alongside a brand lead and they, they could almost be talking in two different you know, languages. It, it just doesn't, doesn't sort of result in deliverable kind of conclusion. So I think that's critical. Business process ownership is another space I think is often quite lacking. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if it's the same in all organizations, but in ours, the commercial organization is perhaps not the first to have business process well-defined and, and clearly owned as a sort of end-to-end -end thing. And again, what we're trying to do is to put a product to a commercial model that has to sit within business processes. If that definition isn't there, that ownership isn't there, that can also lead to challenges. Fantastic, Paul. Any thoughts from you, Mike, as well on this one? I guess I'd echo the translation piece and I, I'm thinking here mostly or a lot so in the eyes of the guys in the field, having been in the field myself to really truly understand the, what's in it for me. I mean, the same goes for any large, for any project, doesn't it? I mean, you, you've got to be clear on the what's in it for me and, and, and what's it actually mean. So I, I think it's all very good and well to have these awesome experts like Yusuf and your team and the team that you're you're describing but in the end the person receiving the end of all that great work has still got to understand well where's it come from why is it come from and and why should I take any notice of it fantastic thank you very robust and rich answer to that uh, relatively simple question but it does talk about the, the level of transformation involved in the and the types of new skills are not, not just technical, which I think is a really important message. So in the interest of time, we're going to conclude with one, one final question, which is going to be a, an open to all, all of our panelists, because we've learned about your experience. We've learned about what's got you here and give you given us some great insights into the ways you've, you've garnered the success you've achieved. Love to get your view on what you see in the next three to five years. Where do you really think AI can go? in commercial execution and, and what do you think the potential is and where would you like to see it go? So perhaps we'll go to Mike. So. Yeah, where do I start? You know, I've got some ideas what I would like to see in the future, whether whether it, it will happen. And, you know, I really relate to the, to the whole Netflix model. I watch Netflix a, a lot. It tells me things uh, that I'm going to enjoy watching before I've even heard of it. It knows so much about me. So I really want to see in the next three to five years, how can how can AI in our pharma space bring that level of intelligence about our HEPs to us, in the, to the guys in the field? Keeping suggestions for content relevant and fresh, even if it's not, what is the HEP looking at? What is, a, what is the customer's voice? What other NLP technologies can we leverage to really understand the voice of the customer and be provided insights that are just going to resonate every time? every single time we, we have a touch point with, with the customer. And the other one is more of a um, more of a practical thing. I, you know, I really, in the next three, three to five years, want to see the end of a traditional call plan. Now, I, this is so old school now in, in my eyes, a fixed time period that we anticipate some goals when actually you think about all the data and the processes and tools we've now got, there's no reason why we shouldn't have a fluid plan that is constantly evolving based on what our customers are doing and, and seeing and, and uh, experiencing at the time. Fantastic, Mike. Great insights into the future. I hope it comes to pass. I hope so too. Uh, <laughs> Yusuf, do you want to add, add some of your thoughts in there? 
Thank you so much, Mike. I, I liked how you centered that in the beginning for the field, because I think after all, yeah, we do this, at least like in my organization, to make field life easier. For me, yeah, if I have to put like a Christmas list, I'm thinking of this um, achieving customer 360, right? I think it has to do with three components here, like the getting all the data, again, not necessarily in a good quality or perfect quality, but at least creating that environment where we have the 360 about our customers, whether it be patients or um, HCPs. And I think using machine learning and AI can help mine that data, actually, because we think about data engineering as using like basic legacy things like with SQL and, and so on. But machine learning today can automate a lot of that and can help us process more data and mine more data in order for it to be ready to be trained. And, and, and also when it comes to data analytics and AI, meaning what are the elements of AI that make sense in the landscape of pharma because you cannot think about all the ai kind of suite and just apply whatever you want and i think there are like specific type of models and theories that you need to invest on for example natural language processing it's inevitable like that everyone has to have a capability their classifications and segmentations targeting capabilities in machine learning i think that's also something that that people need to really invest effort and time on because we all know that, for example, recommendation-wise, one model doesn't fit all. You need to create personas using machine learning of your customers. If it's not done, it's not going to take you uh, anywhere. What I see, for example, this going also, it's creating sort of AI-driven approaches, but with the lens of digital, what I, what I call AI-driven digital first meaning uh, we all know especially in commercial side and marketing having a, a very strong digital platforms like crms and so on so forth and so on so so i think it's very important to make ai integrated and part of that digital strategy right uh, i always say that digital is on top of everything and then you have ai and then you have ml and can create this hierarchy right so it's very important to have this three five year roadmap with the lens of I'm moving my AI capability, but I'm moving it also in congruence with uh, my digital capabilities because you don't want to adopt thousands of uh, portals and uh, digital platforms that, that just going to over your uh, internal and also outside like external users. So there is sort of a rationalization that needs to happen as uh, organizations grow. And that takes courage. It takes a village when it comes to a prioritization, for example, start and stop. Start and stop has to be an exercise of every year or even every half year to make sure that we, we don't miss the three or five year target. So yeah, these are like high level things. I'm very curious to hear what, what Paul has for that. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much more opportunity in pharma. I think if you look at us in comparison to many industries, we, we've only really taken baby steps really in terms of how we, we leverage AI and uh, machine learning. Your example, Mike of Netflix, is a classic example, isn't it? That you know shows well how differently some uh, industries are using it. I think one thing that really um, yeah, it's strange to say it, but kind of uh, energized this space for for me was the COVID period, where you know suddenly the way that we needed to engage our customers changed so much by necessity rather than by any other reason. It's opened people's eyes to sort of how you can work in a much more multi-channel way. And I think what I would like AI to be driving in sort of a few years' time is if you start working in that multi-channel way, then it, then you need AI to drive the trade-offs 
to, to mm -hmm. understand how you optimize your mix to, to sort of get the return on investment and, and where you focus or how you expand your impact and focus your sort of valuable resources into the areas they're going to have most impact. You can't do that without AI, I don't think. You can't do that without, you know, really seeing the trends in the data. And unstructured data is another huge opportunity. I mean, the opportunity we have to, to mine the voice of customer coming back through customer surveys, to mine call notes. We've started to do some of that with medical insights, but there's such a long way you can go there. And again, AI is the only way to do that. You just cannot do that without applying it. So I, I think in, in three to five years, I would hope that we've suddenly moved as an industry where AI isn't a buzzword. It, it's actually just baked into the mainstream of our go-to-market strategies because it's, it's so essential. Fantastic. What a lovely quote to end the panel conversation. AI is essential in the future. So thank you, Paul. Thank you, Yusuf. And thank you, Mike, for a very engaging panel conversation and some perfectly positioned and very candid responses to the questions today. I'd also like to extend a, a very sincere thank you to our attendees for their thoughtful engagement and for prompting these questions. And uh, if you do have any follow-up questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, we'd love to continue the conversation. So thank you very much and officially goodbye. That's it for this special episode of Contextual Intelligence. If you enjoyed this discussion and our sincere thanks to Youssef, Mike, and Paul for their participation in that session, as well as all of our other customers, if you'd like to hear some of those other sessions from the masterclass, you can find them in the resources section of the Octana website or right here in the episode description on this page. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time.